Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Spirituality and Magic Podcast. I am your host, once again, Hunter Salazar, and today we're going to talk about power. So, specifically, the pursuit of power and the nature of power in its multifarious forms. So, what, what, is, what is true power? So, the first little story I'd like to tell you is uh, when Alexander the Great got to India, and it wasn't exactly, it wasn't when he first set foot in India, but it was when he's been there a little while, and, you know, he he ended up fighting an, an Indian king, um, a Raj, and uh, that Raj was so honorable in battle and did not retreat. He, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, admired him so much, he's, uh, he asked the Raj, um, how would you have me treat you? When basically Alexander the Great had really won, won the battle against him, and the Raj said, "The Raj said, as you would treat a king." He didn't give specifics. He's just he's just owning up to the fact that there's a natural order to things, and however you think a king should be treated, treat that king that way. Which could have meant anything, because Alexander the Great wasn't somebody who was expected to follow Indian custom or anything like that. Uh, and Alexander the Great was very kind. He he actually gave back all the land that he could have taken from that Indian king and gave him other a few other lands he conquered in India. You know, very small piece of India, though. Alexander the Great, 50,000 men, you can't go against millions and millions forever, no matter how good of a tactician you are. It's just impossible. No matter how, how well you scare off elephants. But while Alexander the Great was in India, he happened upon he questioned uh, wise sages, and he happened upon this sage, and uh, a boy was standing next to the state. This sage, uh, a kid, and he asked the sage, um, "I can give you anything in the world. I can make you in char- basically in charge or ruler over any lands." I can give you any amount of gold, and it, it was it was fairly fairly accurate as far as Alexander the Great. He had conquered the known world at the time. Um, you know, there, there's still every everything north of uh, a certain level near the equator was um, was just not not really worth conquering, to be honest. For in the ancient world, and uh, Alexander the Great had quite a bit of money he had he had control over over the east and the west in ways that nobody had had before so it wasn't it it wasn't far off the mark of being completely a, a completely legitimate offer and uh, the sage he um he looked at alexander and uh uh he said i i don't need any of that i've i've conquered the need to conquer that you know basically that is my power i have conquered the need in me to conquer so i don't i don't need any of that and Alexander the great you know he's like um please let me give you something and then the sage said uh, all right give me that apple in your hand or uh you know it could have been alexander's hand or it could have just been in a bag uh, it, anyway he asked for one apple from alexander and uh, he gave it to the kid next to him because the kid was hungry. And that was it. Was as simple as that. He didn't. He didn't want any of that. Uh, and and it's not necessarily that that stuff isn't to be wanted, but he had conquered want itself. That 
is power. So material is temporary. Our our spiritual evolution is infinite. So even when you get to the complete us you know submerging and merging with god or the source of the all that is still infinite expansion it's not an end it's it's you've reached the level where it's infinitely expanding so uh you as a soul that is now one with what you were is infinitely expanding so why would you want anything so temporal and then that that is what that is basically the what the sage has to teach that you know true power is conquering one's attachment to power in this world. So, I have another story. Millions of years ago, the avatar of Vishnu was Rama. And he came in the form of a man. And let me tell you why he came in the form of a man. He Millions of years later, he became Krishna, obviously. But he was Rama first. So, Ravana, with a couple of his brothers really powerful saint not a demon yet very powerful saint it is said that he meditated for 10,000 years that could mean some kind of some kind of meditation that i cannot comprehend or uh, multiple lifetimes of meditation um and he meditated with two of his brothers um, the story varies based on what translation or where you get the story from, but basically he, he's meditating. And um, he's meditating on creation, and he's meditating for something. To gain... Really, it's strange because he, he's, very, he's a very spiritual, saintly person, but at the same time he's meditating to gain three wishes from Brahma. And three wishes from Brahma means that you're asking three wishes, uh, uh, wishes from the cre- the creator side of God, which actually isn't worshipped in Hinduism, um, because to worship the creator side of God would be to worship creation, which is to be avoided in Hinduism. You know, Vishnu, the preserver, the preserving side of God, and Shiva, the destroying side of God. Um, and God as, you know, the ultimate form that has no, that is formless is worshipped. These are all worshipped as forms of God, uh, ultimate forms of God, but Brahma is not because, uh, to worship the creator side of God would be to worship creation. So, uh, after 10,000 years or so, uh, I might be getting the story a little off, but he cuts, he has three heads. He also has two other brothers, and there's three of them, but he's actually not cutting his brother's heads off. But there, there is a significance in the, uh, in the number three. So after thousands of years, he cuts off one of his heads. After you know, thousands of years, he cuts off another head. And he, this is all after meditating for thousands of years. And uh, right when he's about to cut his final head off and basically kill himself... Um, Brahma comes to him and says, look, uh, don't do that. That will upset the order. I will give you three wishes because you're willing to sacrifice so much, even your last head. Um, so the reason why Brahma has to come to him and say, whoa, don't, don't do that. The reason that is is because the karma of thousands of years of meditation is quite remarkable. Um, 
you're basically hijacking you're hijacking karma. If you were to kill yourself after all of that meditation thousands and thousands of years, there would be a very big um chaotic bubble or or even black hole in karma because you've gained all this good merit yet you're going to commit suicide for material purposes for gaining something materialistic so that he he realized how to mess with the fabric of reality and it was to use the rules against itself that this amount of meditation would gain him so much karma and then he was willing to just kill himself and basically when you meditate that long there's a lot of space around you like you can even say solar systems that are reliant upon your meditating you become a focal point so brahma understood this and he said okay look i'll give you three wishes just don't cut off your last head which would have killed uh, ravana um so he, his two brothers also got wishes about, you know, one each. Um, Ravana, you could say that Ravana got th- kind of three three wishes in one, uh, however you want to interpret the story. But uh, Ravana, one of his wishes was that no god could harm him, and no, you know, no Dave, and no Asura, no demon could harm him. And his third wish is a little blurry to me. And... I think it's one that's ultimately left up to interpretation. I think it's something like immortality, but not exactly like that. Uh, Or, you know, a lot of the information says that he wanted to basically be able to manipulate material and get the purest form of everything, connect with the purest form of everything so that he can manipulate it. Um, That could be part of the third wish. So he basically just did not want to be able to be killed and he wanted to be able to have, to live for as long as he wanted, whether he wished for immortality or not. Um, so the thing about Ravana is that, you know, he, he thought the gods could kill him. He thought, you know, there's demons that could kill him. But he did not think to ask or to make the wish that no human could kill him. That is why Vishnu was born as Rama in order to establish justice once more on earth, in order to promote virtue, mercy, love, and really order. Um, All these things that Ravana had really torn apart. He'd become a great demon king from being a very saintly and powerful being. He had chosen to become a demon. You could say he had chosen in a single life, which is the worst. Um, So... There's a few lessons about power in this. So power always thinks, somebody who covets power, first and foremost, they always think they know where the threats are coming from. And it's always external threats. Uh, There's very few people who covet material power or magical power or any kind of power who want to become powerful that recognize all the internal threats. It's always the external. So Ravana is recognizing that, yeah, gods are a threat, demons are a threat, and, you know, maybe time itself is a threat. But he did not imagine that something like a human could be a threat. 
the universe has a way of using what you decide not to see against you. What you choose to downplay, what you choose to think that you're better than, the universe has a way of using that to teach you. And for Ravana, it had to be the most brutal lesson because he had become the most brutal person. So, <sighs> Rama comes around. He's in the, he, he is, he is in, he is Vishnu as a man, just like Krishna million, millions of years later was. Krishna being over 4,000 years ago. Um, millions of years for Rama is way far back. Um, different cycle, very different cycle. Hard to comprehend how far back it was. Uh, we, 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 we hit a dissolution. Uh, you know, at several points. So we kind of had to start over. At any rate, um, there's something about Ravana that really struck me in one of the stories that I heard as far as after Rama killed him. And this is related to power. So eventually Rama, of course, killed him. And, you know, he, he brought armies of, like, good beings. And he had an army of monkeys, even. It can be interpreted in a number of ways, or maybe even literally, uh, if you want. Um, but he ended up, uh, destroying, uh, all the Asura, the demons, or at least making them retreat or surrender or, or give up. Uh, it wasn't a complete slaughter. Um, and Rama killed Ravana. And there was this demon that brought, um, in the story, it's a stone plaque. It's like written on stone. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's written on parchment or paper. Uh, I remember it being written on stone, and basically, it was Ravana's message to Rama because Ravana knew he would he would lose. And uh, you know, Ravana, but when he was killed by Rama, he had made like he had basically had like a hundred heads on him, and he he had he gained a hundred heads to look in all directions to be able to look for all threats, and able to. Uh, in order to increase his ego as well, in order to make himself as massive and more so-called important than other beings. He had a hundred heads, and uh, Rama got rid of all those heads. So the this demon, this Asura, he brings this tablet to Rama, and it, it's, it's, a little, it's, it's a longer message than this, but what really touched me was that Ravana says... I, and before I say that, the reason Rama came to kill Ravana was not just because he was causing trouble for everybody or he was you know, being a bad demon. It was because he had stolen Sita, and Sita was the Earth's daughter, and basically it's a symbol for the Earth itself. He had stolen the Earth, and the Earth was crying out to be rescued. And Ravana said, if you do not sleep with me, Sita, which is Earth, then I will eat you. So basically saying, the, uh, I will either sh subjugate Earth or I will destroy it. Make your choice. And this applies very much to things nowadays. And I'm sorry I didn't include that earlier. I just, it just kind of came to me. But um, a lot of people that crave power want to subjugate Earth or destroy it. It's either they get it or nobody gets it. It's... it's it's kind of how a lot of nations act, actually, with it, uh, their governments or their 
president or prime minister or dictator, whatever you want to call him. But, um, so that's why Rama comes and kills Ravana so that the earth is free. It no longer is suffering. It no longer either has to choose subjugation or destruction for itself. And, uh, but Ravana, he, he says a little bit different reason as far as why he did everything. He said, I knew you were God. I, I knew that before, you know, even taking Sita, I, I knew who you were. And, um, you know, I knew that you would come down if, you know, I did all this meditation and cut off my heads and, you know, got all this material, uh, power, all this power and material, uh, gratification and, um, and these combat abilities and everything that I gained before I gained it, uh, the reason why I, I went down this path was because I wanted you to notice me. I wanted you to, I wanted you to interact with me. I wanted, I wanted you to, I wanted you to see me and I, I wanted to be close to you. And the only way that I could figure out to do that was to get you to come down and meet me, even if it was battle. Is the only way I could figure out how to how to get your attention, God, was to do something so bad that you would notice me and that you would be near me, even if it was to kill me. Something along those lines. There's many different there's many different, you know, translations as well as different variations of the story, but that's the one that I remember the most and it was so sad because it wasn't that Ravana wanted to do all the things that he did he just he just wanted God he just wanted to God to notice him and to be near him and he couldn't figure out any other way to do that quickly than to do a lot of bad things quickly in a way um but it's really a it's really a story of humanity as as well. Um it's not that we do bad things in order to get God to notice us. It's that we we all have that desire to be noticed and to be close to that which we come from. And most of us don't know we have that desire, but we all do. And it's it's so ingrained in us and once I think that Ravana realized that and for some reason he chose he chose the path that he chose just to get just to get God to come close to him and to notice him um so Ravana's power that he gained was for a purpose um I think that this relates to a lot of a lot of reasons why other people gain power is that they want security. They want things to make sense. And the only way a lot of people know how to do that, who have big egos, is to, is to gain as much power and prestige as possible so that, so that they have that security, so they have that recognition that they've always desired. But it's misplaced because it's, it's recognition from the source, the all that we really want, but people place it in the wrong baskets. And then it never satisfies them because it, it never could. Um, I think what makes Ravana different is what he, is that he did realize 
what he really wanted deep down, even if he went about it in a wrong way. Um, but people who want power are pl- are placing security in the in the guise of material, and they don't even realize it. Or material gratification, or, or power, or ego, and they don't even realize it. I um I heard so I heard this. Well, before I go into that, um, I'd like to tell another story. This is gonna be a. This is just gonna be an episode of a bunch of stories. So just uh, sit back and uh, be patient with my ridiculous self <laughs> going on and on about power and different stories that I remember. Um, this one is historic. This one is classically historical, and I say classically because people generally think that this is actual history, whereas the stories. As far as Alexander the Great goes, there's a lot of back and forth. And as far as the Ramayana goes, where Rama defeats Ravana, that is not considered as history by very many historians. This one is very uh, much more recent. So, Caesar. He, um, you know, Caesar of Rome, of course. Uh, He put the value of his life in the ability to conquer. But what's interesting about conquerors is that it doesn't really matter what society or what religion or what culture they're a part of or have. It's always about using whatever religion or whatever society or whatever culture they have in order to to gain personal glory and power over things. So Caesar, of course, uh fought that whole civil war against the uh, the Republic of Rome and eventually won against Pompey. Um, but he, he, over the years, he built up this idea of himself and what he could do in the world and how important he was. He built it up so much over the years and he, he had military victory after military victory. He, he subjugated the Gauls, pushed back the Germans, invaded Britannia, made some allies, made sure that people give offerings from that place as everywhere he went. Um, had plans to invade Parthia, never got there. Um, he, he maintained his hold on everything Rome had, and that was in the direct vicinity of Rome. Um, so after all these battles, after all this winning, after these triumphs where he would, you know, go through Rome on these on a chariot, a golden chariot with laurel uh, wreaths around his head with uh, the captured prisoners with all the booty they got. He and he, he wrote books in third person. He would dictate to multiple scribes at once and write in different books. He's all at once. He's very intelligent, very smart person. Um but the sad thing is he he ultimately was so convincing that he convinced he was so convincing and you know what he could do because he did so much that he convinced himself that everybody else once he reached a certain point would think that he was the only solution he was obviously the one that would lead Rome he didn't realize that senators um that had had power before him, before he had dictatorial rule, dictator for life, um, 
had lost their little pieces of power and they wanted it back. And ultimately, the senators are a little bit more cowards than Caesar, to be honest, because they, even if there's about 30 or 40 of them, they were all hesitant to stab Caesar and they all just kind of did it blindly and in a cowardly way where, like, they just, uh, they, they, in a way, bought into, okay, well, we all have to stab them because then everybody's implicated. So nobody really wanted to do it first. Uh, but the reason Caesar got stabbed all those times was because he had convinced himself that he was indeed the leader that the only leader that Rome could possibly have. And so he blinded himself with his own power. It was, it was like bl- being blinded by gold, by a golden mountain. As you are walking towards a cliff, the Golden Mountain's on the other side of that gulf, but you don't see where you're stepping, so you fall because you were blinded by that gold. Caesar thought of himself as that Golden Mountain, and he blinded himself with his own ego. And thus, he lost power very quickly because he died. Everything that he would work toward, um, he did not keep perspective. And most people who covet power to that extreme do not have good perspective. Um, Because the more you focus on how great you are, uh, the more mirrors that appear around you in a circle. The more egotistical you are, the more that you see yourself everywhere and how that you deserve to be everywhere and that everything is yours. Um, But there are always knives behind those mirrors all around you. So power, we can blind ourselves with it. It's not even that power blinds somebody. We can blind ourselves with it. So I I heard a quote today. It's actually from a Harry Potter movie, funny enough. Um, Voldemort, as a kid, he said, uh, this was just a little tiny clip. He said, um, uh, uh, I can make bad things happen to to the people that are mean to me. I can make bad things happen to the people that are mean to me. So, it is injury he's responding to. And the power to injure or affect those who are being mean to him is where he places his idea of power. The power to get back at those who have wronged him. That is a very prevalent um, quality of people who desire power for themselves and people who try to seek power over others. That they have the power to of retribution, of revenge, of vengeance. And it's pretty constant throughout history. Um, but it, it does go back to that, what that sage said, I have the, I have conquered the desire to conquer. That doesn't just mean that you've conquered that desire. That means that anybody who's wronged you, they can't wrong you. It's impossible. Even if they hurt you, even if they kill you. And let me stress this because a lot of people, myself included, can say, oh yeah, I've, I've conquered the desire to conquer. But really 
it requires way more work than you might think. Even if somebody attacks you and you don't want to be violent towards them, I found that fear and uncertainty, you just accept that you're going to be afraid and die if you're attacked. But the ability to defend yourself and attack back and doing and controlling the amount that you do so that is that is not the work of the ego so the, the work of the ego is um it is strange because you know we think okay well you know we don't really want to hurt anybody that attacks us but really is the is the is the does it is that statement coming from fear uncertainty or is it coming from an assuredness of your stance um because i found that fear and uncertainty have caused me to get myself into many situations where i got the crap beat out of me and i knew that i at those times i was afraid and i wasn't making decisions based on even surrendering it was just like i i was so afraid uh, uh once or twice you know one or two of the fights i was in that uh i ended up kind of giving up and just taking it all now i i could plaster on oh yeah i did, i didn't want to hurt that person or you know i was a good guy but that wasn't the case it was decisions it was it was shock and fear that caused that thing to happen it's very important to know the intent and why something happened and and to understand and not label something as you being a good person because you didn't fight back um it's something that I actually started thinking about early, very early on in today. Uh, you've got to know where your motivations come from. Otherwise, um, the ego can be very tricky. People are very good at deceiving themselves because the ego is very tricky. And it sneaks in in the weirdest ways. Um, so, I don't think that a lot of dictators or tyrants or emperors in time have really thought of what is their ultimate intention what are they trying to really accomplish do they really care about their nations do they really care about their their countries their culture or is it all a farce caesar himself you know he went to the he needed money for his project so he went to the nash he went to the basically the national treasury in rome and he's and they're like, look, uh, I mean, we we can't just give you money. And then he's like, look, open the gates or I'm gonna kill you. So then that's how he got the money. Is that really believing in Rome, or is that just believing in your own authority over those who are in Rome? We've had presidents, prime ministers, and dictators around the world who be behave in a very similar way. That you know, when it comes down to push comes to shove, they end up acting like a toddler however great they think that they are. Power, power sought is rarely power gained for, a very, for very long. And the people who really have power are not... It's funny because we, we don't hear about a lot of the sages and saints who have true power because they don't really care about talking about themselves. And they don't even care to use it to subjugate others. We're actually lucky to meet a, meet a sage or a saint because... Um, to meet them and to really interact with them is is a blessing, and because they're not gonna, they're not the ones to seek us out. They're not the ones to even force us to do anything. But to meet one and talk to one, that that is a, a 
an amazing blessing. That that is really a, an exchange of power from that person to you, but the power of knowledge, of wisdom, and of understanding, that's what power is. And I don't mean the understanding and of, of ability or spells to hurt somebody else. I mean the understanding that you need to really ascend towards oneness. Ultim- ultimately, most people who just seek power are are building walls around themselves and isolating themselves more and more and more. Take Saddam Hussein. He would he would be he would basically tell his generals, "Look, hey, give me your ideas. This is an open, you know, let's just have an open meeting about uh, your ideas and maybe what you think we're doing what what I'm doing wrong and uh, what we can do better." And then all the generals that would tell him the various things, um He'd turn around right after he said them and be like, well, you're a traitor. Uh, I'm going to purge you. And then he got, had a lot of those generals killed. And he'd do that, he did that time and time again. Maybe one of his generals. Maybe it was colonels. Or just, but he'd have his, he, would have, he would do purges, uh, act like he was open to their ideas, and do purges of those who thought anything different or wouldn't praise him to the utmost. Stalin did the same thing. The Communist Bolshevik Conference that he was a part of, that he did a speech at, where everybody clapped for dozens of minutes because everybody was afraid to stop, to be the first one to stop clapping because people were, because basically the Kremlin officials were watching to see who who stopped clapping first. He killed most of those conference members. Anybody who had any political power as a Bolshevik, as 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 a founding Soviet, he had hundreds of them killed. Just because they could possibly have some kind of chance of gaining any political power. Um, and the funny thing is about Stalin, and you know, a, a lot of people like this, he wasn't actually that strong of a person. He's paranoid. He, he, was, he was terrible at giving speeches. He was terrible, terrible about even really talking philosophically about uh, communism. He was, I think that the, uh, the term that was used was that he was a great record keeper, a great paper pusher. Um, and that's the biggest compliment that he got before he became Stalin. And uh, little did most people know, obviously, I mean, like, honestly, there's, Stalin was one of the worst Soviets in Russia ever. Um, Lenin said he was too brutal before Lenin died. And once Lenin was dead, then Stalin, he, he felt like he could take out everybody else because you can't take out Lenin. You can't, you can't undermine Lenin. Even Lenin said, look, he's too, he's too, uh, he's too harsh. He's too brutal. And, uh, all these purges shows Stalin's fear, paranoia, um, Sending even his own family members to gulags. Um, his father, which was a cobbler, would beat him and his mother. And what did he do to his own son? He beat him, pester him constantly, be mean to him. His own son tried to commit suicide and he failed. And the only thing Stalin said was he can't even aim straight. And then one within, I can't remember how many sons he had, but is he either that one son or another son that got captured by the Nazis 
the Nazis try to like bargain and like you know get some of their captives back for his son. Uh, Stalin's like, well, anybody who's, anybody who's captured, even my own son, they gave up. They're dishonored. We don't want them. And once they got a lot of their prisoners of war back, even after the war, they shipped them out to Siberia because they had given up. When it was Stalin's fault. He didn't think after signing the non-aggression pact with Adolf Hitler that, that there was any chance they'd go to war. Took down the, uh, the um, what do you call it, pillboxes and uh, uh, defensive fortifications on the border of Poland, between Germany and Poland. Uh, you know, of course, Russia got some of Poland. And after the Nazis, it took, so the first day the Nazis attacked, Stalin would not give any orders. He was dumbfounded. Second day, he wouldn't give any orders. Third day, he wouldn't give any orders. The, well, he did give orders, but these were not, these were insane orders. Um, you're not allowed to retreat. You're not allowed to fight back or even shoot. And you're not allowed to be captured. So what the hell are you supposed to do? This was a mind who thought he had everything figured out for his power structure. He thought that he understood what made him powerful as far as his, his military, as far as his defenses, as far as his control of his country. But when his assumptions were shattered, his reaction was shattered. He, he couldn't react until eventually the desire for vengeance boiled up enough to where he actually started giving orders that made any goddamn sense. But when somebody completely tries to understand everything around them, to gain as much control over it as possible so they gain as much power, like Ravana with a hundred heads, the universe always finds a crack. Always finds a crack in the most masterfully created fortresses. No matter how good you create it. I found that the more that I study history, the more that I see karma punishes those who covet power. And... No matter how many heads you have, no matter how many things you understand, no matter how many ways you look, no matter how numerous your military is or your, your, your bodyguards, your security, no matter how much you try to solidify your own power, you're, gonna, you're not going to meet a good end. Um, there's been few exceptions to this in history. Very few. And honestly, the few, I can think of one that was one of the... He was bad. It, it's The only reason he wasn't a Mao Zedong, which starved 50 million of his own people and didn't have to do a war at all, um, is because he just didn't have enough control over a, a large enough population or space. I mean, Wallachia, uh, Vlad the Impaler... I'm sure that he would have impaled way more people if he had more power. He actually ended up dying pretty peacefully. Uh, I don't, I don't, he didn't die in battle, um, but I'm sure he's definitely... It's all, all that he did. Um, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that he's in a lower realm and he's going to work off his bad karma for a while. Um, and I will say that he learned impaling from the Ottoman uh, Muslims. And learn impaling from them, and um, you know, Muslims after you know credited saying you know we killed Vlad the Impaler, and uh, you know 
as far as you know the Ottomans, I can't blame all Muslims, but as far as the Ottomans, he they they captured him for a while as a hostage, and um, he learned that technique from the Ottomans. So can't really credit your whoever says that you know we have credit for killing Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. Uh, you don't really have credit because you're the one that taught him how to impale. Um, so, and that's just a little quip, a little snarky thing, I guess. Um, so, I'll give you another, this is gonna, I know this is being a long, this is a long episode, but there's, uh, there's so many instances and, uh, stories and history in reference to power, and there's so much to learn. So, um, let's talk about Mao Zedong, because I mentioned him. So Mao Zedong, he, this is how much he loved power. And this is, in a way, it was like Stalin, because Stalin didn't want to fight the Nazis, even though they were obviously diametrically opposed in philosophy to everything communist. They pursued the communists in their own country to the ends of the, like, they, they killed them all, put them in camps. But Stalin was like, ah, you know, not aggressive pack, rather have that, don't really care about ideals. Mao Zedong is very similar. He was very good at organizing guerrilla bands, and he knew how to maneuver in and out of China and avoid big battles enough to where he could actually make his communist um, forces last. He wasn't, he wasn't stupid when it came to battle. Um, the ones that were stupid were the Bolsheviks leading a certain section of China's uh, communist forces against the nationalists and, you know, against, against all, mainly the nationalists, but also, also the Japanese a little bit. But, um, they wanted to fight set piece battles, not guerrilla warfare, but straight on, you know, traditional battles didn't work. Nationalists too strong, too many forces, too much equipment, too much, um, tactical, uh, uh, you know, ability. Um, Mao Zedong, avoid attack when you can. Go around. Don't hold any place that is found out to be your stronghold. Worked very well for him. Um, here's, here's where power shows itself. So when Japan invaded China, you know, just, just uh, you know, around World War II, obviously. Well, not around, you know, kind of before we entered the war, really. But, um... Uh, I don't, I don't have precise dates, but it's definitely bef- you know, it's before 1942. It's probably around uh, 38 or 40. But um, so when J- Japan invaded, Mao Zedong, he really wasn't the, the nationalists. You know, they eventually fled to Taiwan and have like a little tiny, little tiny area that is Taiwan. But uh, the nationalists, they wanted to fight the Japanese. But Mao Zedong and his forces... He kind of led them like, eh, no. Uh, I think that we should focus on the nationalists. Mao Zedong was not feeling threatened by an external alien force. He was more threatened by another force within his own country that possibly had a claim to power over himself. So think about it. Instead of, it'd be like if we were invaded, if us and Canada were invaded, and Canada just, you know, let's just, this is just all BS, but like, okay, let's say that the United States and Canada is invaded by um, uh, Russia. And then for some reason, 
you know, this is kind of, you know, nationalists that have bigger forces and more organizations. So I'm going to make the United States the nationalists. It'd be like Canada's just choosing to fight the United States still while Russia is attacking us both. And the interesting thing is, so, so yeah, so Mao Zedong did not want to attack the Japanese who were the actual invaders. He, he feared, he feared a rival so much that he was willing to attack other Chinese nationalists. And even the Soviets, even Stalin said, look, you have to, you got to attack the Japanese. They're the problem. The Soviets were afraid of the Japanese because they the Russo-Japanese War didn't turn out so well for the Soviets. They were defeated humil- in humiliation by the Japanese Navy, which was not even that great. Um, so the Soviets, obviously, they wanted them to take on the Japanese. But the, even Mao Zedong's like, no, nah, you know, he avoided that. But the main point here, you know, when Mao Zedong eventually won, uh, he... He wanted to copy it, copy the Soviets, so he ended up starving 50 million of his own people in an effort to feed everybody in the cities, and he didn't care about people in, in farms. Um, rampant cannibalism. Stupid policy decisions that show that Mao wasn't intelligent in all ways, like killing all the sparrows, getting people to keep sparrows in the sky with brooms and sticks so that they would exhaust themselves and die. So that they wouldn't eat any crops, but then of course the bugs came and there was no sparrows to eat them, so the crops got destroyed and there was famine, as another famine, and they had to ship in sparrows from Russia. Anyway, so what was interesting about Mao Zedong is that he was completely focused on killing as many of his people as possible. He was the most evil man in history. Not just because, well, starving 50 million people definitely makes you the most evil, but it's not just that. He made constant policies that basically told his either Red Guard youths or communist soldiers to basically, you need to find um, AB members, anti-Bolshevik is what they call them, this bullshit, there's no anti-Bolsheviks, not really. You need to find them. You need to find people who owned any property, the bourgeoisie. You need to find a certain amount, uh, you know, uh, some dissenters of some kind. You need to find a certain amount. You have to kill this many people. If you don't have this many people killed, if you don't kill this many people, then you're going to be killed. So he had quotas of people to be killed. And this was a huge ramp up from what Stalin did because he had death quotas too, but... Mao did it on the millions of people level. And he was so obsessed with trying to seem more powerful than the United States that he ended up making large amounts of kilns in everybody, you know, in, in everybody's villages that eventually produced slag, iron that was not useful for anything. Power can twist a mind and an understanding of reality to such an extent that it's not even productive. And it's honestly, I mean, think of even like from Star Wars, the Sith Emperor. If you were a loyal citizen, at least he could use you. But Mao Zedong, even if you were loyal, that wasn't, that was far from a guarantee that you would live, that you would be able to eat, or that you would have any level of safety. He's a monster, and people need to know about that. So that's why I kind of focus on him for, you know, a little bit there. I apologize. But ultimately, 
those who covet power first and foremost, they don't end up making sense to even themselves as they started out. It starts to twist in a weird uh, downward and inward spiral where there's, there's only this dark cell of contemplation that becomes darker and darker until you can't even see what the whole point of your life was or what you were trying to do. It's The more you study history, the more you see this. And the more you study human nature, like in my spiritual studies with um, plenty of Hindu texts for sure and other texts and uh, Paramahansa Yogananda teaching a lot. Um, the more you start to value looking at yourself and reforming yourself within, the less you have the desire to reform others on the outside. You know, we all have that person in our lives who's like, oh, you need to do this, this, and this, but they don't really look at themselves. Your kingdom, the kingdom that you have authority over, the only kingdom you have authority over is within yourself. That is your right. That is your birthright. That is the place where you need to reign, but the real you, not the little you, the, the real you, the soul, the, little, the large I, not the little I. The large self, not the little self. The little self is ego. The large self is the soul. It's hard for a lot of us to hear our soul. It's hard for a lot of us to even know how to be influenced by our soul because there's so much ego attachment and, and societal influences that it's, it's like trying to hear a single bird among a chorus of various species of bird. Thought and silence and compassion and humility, even piety, all these things lead to a lack of a, of a fear that if you're not powerful, you'll be hurt. Mao Zedong himself, he was so afraid, and, and this correlates with the desire for power, that if there was other party members that he didn't know, that you know came into a room he would shiver out of fear this man that had mur had ordered the murder of millions of people afraid hitler he was so he was so neurotic and agitated and fearful of the first steps of world war ii that the first countries he invaded he was so agitated about how it was going that he would pick up a rug and chew on it like an animal I mean, hell, my animals don't even do that. It's a fear. He desired power. He wanted it. He didn't know if he had it yet. He didn't know if it would continue. And that drove him insane. The best advice I can give to anyone is to look at yourself. I'm not saying that anybody can tell you how to look at yourself, but just look at yourself in silence. It's the best advice I can give to anybody, and it's, and it's not even specific. I know it's vague, but this is how you overcome these things that have caused so much suffering in humanity. It's to take responsibility for yourself, for your own development, for your own spiritual progress, or even if you're not spiritual, your own philosophical progress, your own virtuous progress. That is the best thing you could do, not only for yourself, but for everybody else in the world. 
because that will have an effect on how you interact with others. At any rate, this has kind of been, uh, I think I'm going to call this the history of power. I might make further episodes. I actually didn't get to everything that I wanted to get to, surprisingly. I know I've been ranting for a while, almost an hour, but um, this has been the history of power, at least part one. Thank you very much for listening. I probably won't be including commercials for a while because Anchor kind of canceled their, you know, giving you even the small amount of sense that they give you. So uh, luckily for you, <laughs> probably won't be a lot of commercials, but I will, I will give a free commercial to something that I use quite often that I learn from. Uh, the Great Courses Plus. It's an app. I'm, I think you can get it on a computer. I got it on my phone. So many different courses by so many different professors um, on any subject. It's still growing. They're still making the library, but for $20 a month, $5 a week, I've learned so much. Um, religion, war, history, uh, comparative studies between different religions, different spiritual traditions, how people lived, what people thought about, food, martial arts. There, there's so many different subjects, even something as specific as the French Revolution, which I, I adore studying. Um, and they have, you know, well, they have really well-known and attributed professors that really explain things well. And uh, each course, it's a lot of the time, it's up to like 20 episodes of like 45 minutes a piece. So you get a lot of content, $20 a month, and they're always adding to it. You can learn about ancient Egypt or, or Roman warfare or the philosophy of, of all the philosophers that we think about or various sages. It's, it's remarkable. So please look up the Great Courses Plus. Once again, I'm getting no money from them. I don't even think that they know they know I exist, but it's just a really great thing to be a part of. You can get the app on your phone. I'm sure if you have an iPhone or Android or most other phones, you can probably get the Great Courses Plus. It's kind of like this orange little flame thing um, as far as the icon, but uh, you should be able to find it based on what I told you. At any rate, I love you all. Love yourselves. Love others. Look at yourselves. Try to understand yourselves before judging others. And all of you, have a wonderful day. This has been The History of Power.